at some point, my kids will really be helpful to me in helping us as a family navigate money. And it won't just be Jesse and Julie dispensing this advice. You know, that they'll have really good ideas and really well-formed thoughts on how things could go. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan. And mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Jesse Meekum, founder and creator of You Need a Budget, which as you all know, is my all-time favorite budgeting platform. A self-proclaimed recovering CPA, Jesse is deeply passionate about teaching individuals, families, and business owners YNAB's four rules to help them gain total control of their money. But Jesse is also the father to seven small people aged 1 to 17 that he is teaching how to manage money. So today, Jesse is here to tell us the story of YNAB and how we can teach budgeting and money lessons to our kids even before they have rent payments to think about. As always, stick around to the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this conversation with Jesse, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash 109 to grab our free family money values template and check out the complete show notes with our favorite takeaways from this conversation. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Jesse, welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show. I am glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Chelsea. Goodness knows we've talked about YNAB on almost every episode of this show. It's the tool I've used since my first internship in college and the number one tool I recommend to our mamas. But give us some background. Where did the concept of the YNAB app start for you? The concept started because Julie and I were going to be married and she was making eight bucks an hour and I was making eight bucks an hour at the university. And when you combine those two together, you're still basically making eight bucks an hour. And I had three years of school left, and Julie, thankfully, she was a little ahead of me and was going to wrap up. But once she graduated, she was going to make a whopping $11 an hour in uh, the field of social work. Big money. So I just knew things would be tight. And before we were even married, I built this spreadsheet just for Julie and me that basically kind of said, well, let's watch our dollars closely. We decided to have a baby pretty soon. And once he was inbound, then it was like, well, what are we going to do here? Julie's making most of the money. We really wanted her just to be able to stay home with Porter, our inbound first. And so I was thinking, how do we shore up this gap that is Julie basically saying, hey, I'm going to step back from the workforce for some period of time. So I thought, well, maybe other people would want to buy this little spreadsheet that I've built. And so that, that was it. And so what has it been like to watch it develop from this little spreadsheet that was just for you and Julie earlier in your marriage to being one of the most widely used budgeting tools available? Yeah, it's it's bizarre. It's just absolutely crazy. Yeah, it, like people are like, what was your vision like? You know, you used entrepreneurial vision. I was like, <laughs> I, I needed to make $350 per month. If I could make that, I didn't have to borrow money for school. Julie could stay home and then I could move on and become a you know CPA and some big partner at a big law firm. That was the grand plan. Like the entrepreneurial vision was just 350 bucks a month. But Chelsea, I will say this. I'm really glad that we needed to shore up only $350 a month and not something like 3000 because that idea wouldn't have held water at 3000. And so there's something to be said about living within your means to the degree you can and what kind of opportunity that might afford you where it was like this bite-sized thing that I could tackle and not just something where you think, oh, that, that's impossible. We'll just, you know, we'll borrow some money or we'll make some other compromise along the way. 
So what's the first thing you did? Were you just selling that Excel spreadsheet? Yeah, it was like old school days. There was no such thing as a phone that had apps. You know, it was like, here's the spreadsheet. Someone would, you know, I'd get an email and said, hey, so-and-so bought this. And I would email them back with the spreadsheet attached. Boom, automatic, except for all that manual work. Yeah, (laughs) you you know, you'd copy and paste a PayPal button on your website. And I had to learn HTML and all that stuff. And you just, you iterated. And if you were to go back and look at our website, it would make you cringe, maybe smile. But I mean, it was me. I didn't know what to do about any of that. But you just kind of go. And as you go, you learn and your standard goes up for what you find acceptable. And it just, you're earning the amount of money that you can handle. And it grows nicely with you over time. (laughs) And I'm so curious about the entrepreneurial journey here. We're going to get back to budgeting, I promise. But I came into using the YNAB app when it was a desktop app. So we could move past the emailing the spreadsheet stage. But you guys were still just a desktop app. When were you ready to make that transition? Did you hire developers? Like, how did you get to the next level? My now business partner, Taylor, he emailed me, a stranger on the internet. This is back when it was weird that internet meetings would happen. And he emails and said, hey, I can improve your spreadsheet. I'm a developer. And I said, well, I'd really like to just get rid of the spreadsheet and build some real software. And he said, well, I can do that too. So we came up with an agreement and I paid him basically for milestones. And he built the first version in nine months. We did everything over the phone, like landline phones. And it was just pretty old school, but we got it out there and, and I made I made my money back that I'd paid Taylor and then some. And then I had a product that I could charge, oh gosh, I think twice as much for justifiably. I mean, it was light years ahead. And from there, we just, we've iterated along with the tech. So, I mean, you can even ask Alexa, you know, hey, how much is in my groceries category? And she'll tell you. Of course, your friend can ask too, which might be awkward. So you have to be careful. Hey, we just have to talk about money more openly, right? Yeah, exactly. So what adjustments did you and Julie make in those early years for her to become a stay-at-home mom? You said your shortfall was only $350. For us, it was me sitting there, and I've always been the nerd number-crunching side of things, and she's just going to be like, okay, if this is what we've decided, she'll just go. And so we were of one mind in that regard. I was crunching the numbers and realizing we we weren't going to make it, and I did not want to borrow money, but I still had two years left of school once our baby was born. So this was not in my forecast, but I did end up getting a higher paying job halfway through those two years, ended up making 16 bucks an hour, which for us at that time, it was amazing. It really helped. And then we stayed in our apartment. It was a $350 a month apartment. And we stayed in that basement for as long as, as long as we could, but we always had respiratory issues. I'm not kidding. Like we had weird, I think there was legitimate mold or something just in the walls. So before Porter was actually born, we were like, okay, we we need to move out of here. So it was just a lot of forecasting, number crunching, looking at kind of worst case scenario. And we recognized, okay, if we can make this work, then, you know, make a little bit of money, then we can pull this off and she can stay at home. And her thing's been, I mean, we were laughing last night because I was saying, you know, a lot of people, they'll say, hey, well, our kids are young. I'll step out of the workforce. And you and I chatted when you were on our podcast about like, you got to be strategic about that. And she said, oh, my strategy has always been, you know, you stay out of the workforce while the kids are young. We just kept having kids. And she's like, boom, <laughs> problem solved. You know, she's being very snarky about it. But her plan has always been, while well, these kiddos are here and she'll be there. And then we'll see what happens. You know, we have so long before we have to answer that question again. So, so your youngest is one, right? 
Yeah. And she's like, well, I would, I would wait till he was 18. I was like, oh yeah, naturally, of course you would. She has her hands so full and she's just unbelievably good at at running things. And really, I mean, to be quite frank, and I don't think people say this enough, but she enables me to focus tremendously on what pays the bills for us. And and sometimes we kind of like to look at one side and be like, well, here's how the money's made and this, and here's how the money's not made. And you're just like, ah, it's like, this is a team situation. If she were to suddenly be gone, oh my gosh, how my work would suffer. So we've talked about that a lot. So my husband's a stay-at-home dad, and it's the same way I couldn't run my business without him doing that. And it's actually played into how we've chosen life insurance for him of like, what would I need if you weren't here? But budgeting is such a point of contention for so many couples, especially when you have young kids, and there's all these demands on our money. So where do you think people go wrong that make it harder than it has to be? Okay, there are a couple like personalities, right, that will that we hit. One is the perfectionist, where I mean here you have this person that doesn't know what they spent yesterday and suddenly they're like, I'm gonna just nail this. And you're like, No, you're not. You're not gonna <laughs> even come close to nailing it. But so this perfectionism is is really tough. And so you have to kind of acknowledge like budgeting is not about setting something up perfectly and then abiding by it perfectly. Budgeting is a process of deciding what your money should do continually. Much like a coach at halftime where she's like, uh, we're gonna change our game plan, this, 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 and this, in relation to how things are developing in the game. We do the same thing with budgeting. It's a process of executing and changing strategy as often as needed. So that's how you can combat the perfectionist mentality is you realize, oh, I'm doing this right if I'm making changes and adjusting as we go. And don't think it's a kind of a crystal ball thing. Another bit that's really interesting is, again, you have someone that's very unaware. They might claim they're aware, but very rarely is that true. They're pretty unaware about where their money's going. And then they go full tilt into like major granular tracking mode. And the classic example, if you're in the US, maybe elsewhere where you're in, you know, you go into Target and you can buy all these different kinds of items. And then you have 20 different categories that this one transaction hits and someone's like, oh, this is such a pain putting this all into my 20 different categories. And I think you got to dial back the granular stuff. Like you really shouldn't budget separately for toothpaste, you know, like let's roll it all in together and be a little more forgiving on exactly how specific we need to be. The best rule of thumb there is if knowing that information will not change your behavior, then do not attempt to gather that information. It just ends up kind of being noisy. So overly granular perfectionist. And then you do have a third where the main issue is in the partnership relationship where you have one person gung-ho and one person that's uh, reluctant. Internally, we call them the reluctant partner. Yeah, we're like, oh, we're the, we're, how do we deal with these reluctant people? So what tips do you have for that reluctant partner? There are a couple tricks that you can use. One is you figure out one in the relationship, usually the no person, and it's not fun to be in the role of the person that says no. It's not fun to rain on the parade, and it's not fair either. So I really want people to recognize that a budget will allow you to shift the no saying off of you onto this third-party budget that you both can just kind of lament together, and it's relieving for that person. But before you get there, you figure out what you would normally say no to. Like what is just kind of a patently absurd thing that you would not spend money on? And you secretly, and it's pretty easy to do this secretly if you have one partner that doesn't really look at stuff too much, 
It's pretty easy. And I'll just leave it at that. And you can just save up for that thing, depending on how ambitious you are. It could take you a month or six months. One woman that we interviewed years ago, she would do returns and get cash back. And she was literally laundering the money. You know, that's essentially like, she's getting, she's like, how do I clean this money and get it out of the budget so her husband wouldn't see? And then she stashed it in a basil jar where she had like basil herbs at one point. So at Christmas time, she busts out this massive, like stacked full of cash, basil smelling cash. <laughs> and she surprised him and said, we can pay off the rest of our debt with this pile of cash. He was moved by how much effort that, I mean, she'd put in for months and months and months. And that was what kind of lit the fire for him. Like, whoa, this thing can help us achieve things we want. He didn't want the debt. She didn't want the debt, but he was just kind of not really believing it. You do the same thing with a vacation. You can just kind of say, hey, uh, I have a little bit of a surprise. So I kind of feel bad about this, but I secretly have been hoarding money for us. And now we're going to go on this vacation and we're going to spend every dime of it. And that usually will get a reluctant partner to kind of be like, oh, so wait, this thing is so we can get stuff, not so you can be even more overly controlling than you already are with the money. And it's hard because we want to have that open communication. We want to be on the same page. That's the ideal situation. Yeah. But instead of people just waiting for their reluctant partner to get on board, sometimes you've got to get a bit creative to kind of get them going. Mm -hmm. And so you actually have how many kids? What ages? We have seven kids. The youngest is one. And then the oldest is almost 17. At one point, the craziest we had was five kids, seven and under. <laughs> Do not recommend. Oh, my gosh. That was Crazy, crazy, crazy. I can't even... Your wife must be superwoman. She is, absolutely. And I can't... I mean, she and I both look back and we're like, how do we pull that off? I'm pretty sure we had more energy. <laughs> but yeah, it was just intense. You know, and looking back, it's, it's just every day is a day. So you figure it out. But we, yeah, we do have a lot of kids just to be super clear with everybody. <laughs> so my kids are still young. They're five and three, but I've loved seeing early signs of their money personalities start to come out. Mm -hmm. So how are your kids' money personalities so far? Do you have spenders, savers? Oh yeah. Like the one that has the money that's burning a hole yep. in his pocket. That's my oldest. <laughs> it's like, if you got it, you spend it. Like I have $5. Let me just look around until I can see something that costs $5. And then that's what I now want. So there's that. And then we have my third, Lydia. She cannot... I mean, she just wants a few things, mm -hmm. and but she'll save up for it for quite a while, and then it's like, I'm going to get that. So she's like this very goal-oriented, I want stuff, and then they, they pull that off. And then I have another one, uh, my fifth. It's funny how I have to like think about it. I'm like, what? <laughs> but our fifth, she just doesn't spend. She just likes the pile. And she sees it in her little wine ab, and everyone, once they're eight, we put them actually on the software. And once they have their own checking account, which in the US, I think normally, I think you have to be like 13 or something to go in and get a debit card. Mm -hmm. And so once they have their own account, that's not like a joint thing with me, then they'll move into like their own separate YNAB subscription, which thankfully I get a pretty good discount. So it works out. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine. So you start them on their own YNAB at eight, but when do you start talking to them and teaching them about money and budgeting? I mean, is there a starting point for it? You know, I think you just... Mm. It's like you teach them to be kind. You teach them not to hit each other. Don't, especially don't bite. Like I never wanted to have a biter, you know, like please don't bite. <laughs> but yeah, you just, you're kind of always talking about it. And if the partners are on board, I mean, Julie and I are still discovering how we do money. There's never a, an off switch there. Mm. But 
money isn't scary for us to talk about. And so we're, we can't not talk in front of our kids because there's always one of them somewhere in the house where we're like, oh, here they are, you know, again. So, <laughs> so we're always just having pretty freight conversations. I had a really fun one the other night at dinner where I asked the kids, hey, how do we, how should we handle college for y'all? Cause I had just talked with Ron Lieber who wrote a book, How to Pay for College. And it blew my mind. Oh yeah, he's great. And I'm like, how do we do this? And they all had such different opinions. One person was like, just give us the cash, let us decide. Someone else is like, don't help us at all. Never, no, we don't need it. It will, it'll ruin us. Oh my it'll ruin our character. I'm like, well, that's cool. <laughs> does that tie to their current money personality though? So the spender is the one that doesn't, he's my oldest. He does not want any help Interesting. from me at all. He doesn't want me to get him a job or like contact a buddy and say, hey, do you have something for a 17 year old? I, I mean, I could, and he's just like, "Did you, no, I didn't earn that job. It's so, inter it's bothered me because I'm like- It's very interesting. Like, come on, man. Like- I could get you a really good landscaping job or something, something good for you. And he wants to earn it himself. So he'll take less pay mm. and he'll do the whole application process. And then he's like, yeah, that's mine, which it's awesome. I didn't teach him that. I think he just kind of yeah. came that way. So what were some of the other opinions? So the other one was like super fair, Lydia. She's just like, you'll just have a set amount and each kid will get that. And then they can use it however they want. I said, well, that's not bad. And then someone else was like, mm -hmm. well, no, I set percentage or a set like flat amount. Because what if someone wants to go to some really swanky school and someone else has no desire to do that at all? Like, should we treat that equally or? Yeah. I mean, and I'm asking these kids th this question because I genuinely, I do not know exactly how we should do that. Yeah. I've interviewed tons and tons of people older than me, younger than me, kids, all different ranges that have already done it and haven't. And and what I have discovered is everyone does kind of their own thing, even individually for their own kid. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping yeah. being frank with my kids about money, about where it comes from, that we're grateful for it, that we have one of a kind opportunities, that they recognize that it's a blessing. And if they can see that, and I've taught them to work and be honest then. That's all I got to really worry about. College is hard too because they just have different goals, right? Yeah. Kids have different experiences and it's a tough one. I don't think there's one right answer, but I love that all your kids had different thoughts. Like with your former career, if you were saying, I wanted to go to like an investment bank, there are certain schools where you could certainly increase your odds if you were to go to those schools. Mm -hmm. And those certain schools are more demanding and prestigious and probably more expensive. And so if you have a kid that's thinking that's my path, then- you could do that. And you have other, another kid that said, I want to end up running a plumbing business with 10 vans. And that's also phenomenal. You, you know, like letting, like giving your kids like a wide berth yeah, and really letting them figure out what they want to do. I don't know. This is just like one parent to another, you know, we're both trying to, like, we've never done it before trying to figure it out. Yep. And, but I feel good about taking that approach of having the kids discover yeah. what they want. And Ron Lieber, again, he does a great job of advocating for some gap time. Yeah. He says, don't waste college on a teenager, you know, those 18 year olds. So I kind of like that. I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. It does make sense. I think there's so much pressure to like the achievement and just to stay on that conveyor belt that we send kids before they're even really ready to know what they want to do. And that's yeah. an expensive way to just kind of go find yourself in college. But I love that you're having these conversations. Well, I was just say, let alone that same kid deciding they should borrow a bunch of money and they don't really know what they're mm -hmm. doing with that. Like pretend that the parent maybe doesn't know or isn't really involved and then you have a whole other 
ball and chain they might find themselves with decades later. Absolutely. But I love that you brought this question to your kids when you're uncertain. And I think that's something that we've talked about in our community of letting your kids know that we're all still figuring this out. Like I think sometimes parents want to teach our kids about money and they think they have to have all the answers first. And it's really not true, mostly because we can't. We're always having these conversations. We're always learning more things about ourselves. So I'm curious, do you guys do allowance in your house Mm -hmm. or do you do something different? We did. Yeah. And this isn't a big homage to Ron Lieber, but he actually convinced me on the allowance front years ago. He said, the purpose of allowance is to have your kids practice with money, Mm. not to teach them to work. And I was like, that seems interesting. I might run with that. So they do chores and they have, you know, Julie, I mean, she runs a tight, tight ship because you have to. And we have high expectations on contributing to the household because you live here, but that's separate from the allowance. Now, once they're old enough to work and I give them, I employ them at my business, usually cleaning our office. That's, that's there where everyone starts. Mm-hmm. I fired them one year because they kept complaining. I fired all of them. I was like, you're all are fired and we might rehire you next year. And they, <laughs> they were like, they thought I was bluffing. I was not bluffing. So they didn't work for like eight months that year. And they started missing, like they had started to amass a little bit of money. And then when it ran out, they were like, oh, I kind of wish I wouldn't have been so lame about working. <laughs> so once they can work, then I stopped doing the allowance. But it's because you know they can go once a week and earn some money and the allowance was so small anyway. And what's the age cutoff for when they can work? Eight. It might be against, I think in Utah, it's not against the law because they are my kids. So I just want everyone to be clear. Like, (laughs) I think I'm on the up and up here in doing that. So I grew up working on a tobacco farm, Mm -hmm. but you could start at 12, but you would only work a certain number of hours. There's like a cutoff. And then it wasn't until you were 15 or 16, I think, when you could work full time in the summers, which is crazy. Full time, 40 plus hours on a week at a farm when you're 16, 17 was a lot. But I really want to get into how you started allowance with your kids and what age. But before we do, let's take a quick pause to hear from our partners who help make the Smart Money Mama show possible. When you're having a new baby, there's so much joy and excitement. You can almost feel those little baby cuddles and can't help cooing over every adorable outfit you see. Yet there are so many new and slightly scary things to consider, especially when it comes to money. What things do we need to buy and what can we skip? How much will the delivery cost? How do we think about childcare? Oh my gosh, where will all this extra money come from? And do I need life insurance? And what am I going to do about work? It's enough to make you want to curl up in a ball and hope all these questions just magically go away. But I don't want you to hide. What if, instead, I could hold your hand through all these questions and help you make the best financial decisions for your growing family? We've created the New Mama Money Plan to be that guide, to turn what feels like a mystery into an action plan that you can carry out with confidence. For just $27, the New Mama Money Plan helps you handle everything from reviewing your budget to creating the right estate plan. Instead of trying to fumble through it all on your own, let us lend a hand so you can get back to loving on your little one. Head to newmamamoneyplan.com to grab your planner today or purchase one as a special present for a friend. Congratulations, Mama. You're going to be an amazing parent. Okay, so before your kids are eight, they have an allowance. At what age did you start allowance with your kids? Oh, gosh. I think I think when they're four. So four to eight. But they don't have YNAB until they're eight. So from four to eight, what do they do with their money that you give them? 
I actually, with Faye, she's the little one in this spot right now. I actually don't give her the money. We just record it on our phone in a note. Mm -hmm. Like it's just a tab that mom and dad manage. And I just simply tell her, oh, you have this money. And she forgets, doesn't spend it. The real like hands-on lessons for us, they really kick on at about eight years old because then the money's, I don't know, things are sticking better for them. And honestly, it may just be that I have so many other kids that are now older than Faye that need more attention where I'm kind of like, I will worry about Faye when she's eight. You know, no offense to Faye, but (laughs) that really might be part of it because I do remember being more hands-on with Porter at when he was at her age and he had cash and I didn't want him to buy this certain thing with cash. So I like took it all out in ones. So it was a big stack and he still didn't care and was just like, here you go, Best Buy. And he bought some little electronic thing that lasted like two weeks. So like a total loss on my part. I was trying to teach him a lesson. So I do remember being more involved with him at that five, six, seven age range. But as the others, it's gotten more complex. You know, they're like, hey, dad, Venmo me this. And I'm like, oh, this is all new. Faye's been kind of, I'm like, ah, we'll get to her when. And then the first Sunday of every month, we do have a routine where we go through their budgets and I show them how to reconcile and how to move money and things like that. They're pretty savvy. That's pretty cool. And so what about those lessons when something like Porter, right? They want to buy something that you don't want them to buy. Have you been able to let go of the reins at all? Are you still trying to convince them not to buy those things? I mean, you know, you're talking to like an Enneagram 8 control freak. So I I had to really (laughs) fight, really fight. I mean, he bought this LeapFrog handheld computer thing. They're probably defunct now or whatever, but it was years ago. And I knew it was like a flash in the pan because I have more experience than that little kid. And he had all this birthday money amassed over years that we had just, we, you know, he'd get birthday money. We'd put it on that tab. And then he was, I think six. And I don't even know if I told him he had a hundred dollars or how he found that out, but he was like, oh, I gotta, let's do this. It was that burn in the hole in the pocket thing. So I went to the bank, got all singles, counted it out. And then at Best Buy, he counts it out, right? For the cash, the cashier's like, what the heck? I don't even know how to handle this. You know, some 19 year old is like, what is this? Is this, this paper? But it was interesting that he had zero hesitation. And from that point on, I was like, oh, I got a spender. Um, now we do enforce almost like you tell your kids, hey, don't drink, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, save half your money, save half your income. We talk about that as if it's a given, like non-negotiable. Everybody does it. My little kids think everybody always saves half their income. And I'm letting let that lie for as long as it can. And so in that way, they are still saving. So even when I say he's this hot spender, he is still saving. And so I can, whenever he's kind of feeling bad and has buyer's remorse after, I can be like, hey, Porter, like, it's cool. I mean, you are saving half your income. You're just spending, spending money. So that's not so bad. And it's kind of helping reinforce, like, sometimes it's okay to spend the money. And even if you feel bad about it later, you're hitting your big goal. You know, you're saving up for college and all that. That's so awesome. So can you talk us through the four YNAB rules and how you make them make sense for kids? Oh, they already make sense. That's the beauty of being a kid is like, when you're first setting them up with a budget and you want to teach them rule one, give every dollar a job. Yep. You are just teaching them that money runs out, essentially, and that there are trade-offs. And as adults, somehow we've forgotten that there are trade-offs, but these kids, it's like instinctual. So we go in and I'll say, hey, Max, you know, I'm setting him up. What do you want to buy with your money? And at this point, he knows maybe it's $150, you know, or whatever. And and he says, oh, I want to buy this. And and I'll start 
getting him to think of more things. Well, what about this? What about that? What about a new thing for your switch? What about a game? And we'll just keep going. And pretty soon he has like 15 categories. And then we say, okay, you got 150 bucks. What do you want to buy? Without fail, so far, each one of my kids, when I walk them through this that first time, they end up landing on one, maybe two things that they actually want. So they have this killer ability to prioritize, emphasize, and focus on that one big thing because they know I'll get this soon and kids want stuff now. So the fastest thing to get something almost now is to just put all that gas onto that one fire. And it's fun to watch because you'll be like, oh, you ran out. And he's like, oh, we'll take from this, put it here. Oh, we'll take from this, put it there. They naturally just hit those trade-offs. And that's what rule one is for adults, for kids, everyone. It's just, there are trade-offs. And then when you take rule two, where we call it embracing your true expenses, all we're really doing is saying, you're making these trade-offs. What do I want my, my money to do? And now with rule two, your true expenses are larger, less frequent expenses. And now you're just weighing that along with your kind of now needs. And it's like, well, now your trade-offs involve not just what does Chelsea need right now, but what does Chelsea in six months need? And so two Chelsea's are at the table and you're both kind of negotiating that. So that's our, our second rule is really just a derivative of the first rule. It's like, okay, here's the first rule and here's the first rule applied to things that don't happen monthly that need to be addressed. The third rule is to change your mind. It's called rolling with the punches. And that means just what we talked about. If you need to make an adjustment, you do. And our fourth rule, you age your money. And this for kids isn't super applicable. The changing their mind is, the rolling with the punches, they're fine with that because it's, again, just trade-offs. Rule two, most kids don't have enough money to buy things right away anyway. So they're already getting this idea of like, I put the money in the category, I see it grow, I see it grow again. Aging their money isn't really too important for them because they don't have bills and stress associated with that paycheck to paycheck cycle, but they do brag to each other about what their age of money is. So, you know, you do get bragging rights. What kind of categories do you have for their true expenses for the kids? When you think about them in six months, what are the things they come up with? Summer stuff happens pretty easily for the kids. So you're thinking, well, summer's coming. Are there any things you want to do that are kind of like a bigger deal? We pay for most of their things. When they're 14, I try and convince them that they should pay for their own clothing. And then we kind of walk them. How's that going? Uh, eh, it's okay. It turned into 16. And sometimes this is what they'll do. They'll be like, well, I don't want to spend money on new pants. And you're like, you've grown six inches in five months. Like you look ridiculous. <laughs> and they're like, well, I just don't want to spend money on pants. And so then Julie, she just can't, she's like, oh, they need new pants. She'll fold, you know, they're just, they're manipulating their mother and it's not cool. Where I'm like, I hope those split on you when you bend over at school. Like, I really hope that it's something embarrassing for you. So yeah, they'll, they'll try and do that a little bit, but the rule two stuff like saving up for things in the summer or honestly, a lot of just toys, fun things. Lydia likes to get her nails like a, what it's called. Manicure. Yes. Thank you. She'll do that. And that's expensive and she finds it worth it. So that's, everyone's got their own priorities. And so, but she has to save up for it. It doesn't, you know, she can't make so much that she's like, oh yeah, manicure all the time. So that one works out pretty well. A big one for my second was he wants to build his own computer. And so he's been slowly saving up for that. It's fun to see him have to delay gratification. Yeah, it's such a powerful tool for adulthood that they've built that grit. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, like, there's a level of maturity that comes with just being able to defer and be like, I can, I'll do that later. 
So before we got on the air, you talked about how you've run some experiments, different money ideas with the kids. Can you share some of those stories? Yeah, I mean, one was the dollar bills for that leapfrog. That was one where I thought, okay, if they fill the cash, that'll do it. And it didn't go well. The other one was I tried to just keep track of, like I would just kind of be the bank and not have them have real accounts. And this was several years ago. I thought, well, we'll just kind of track. And then they'll, when they want something, we'll just look at our little tab that we have for them. And this is kind of what I grew up with. So I was going off a little what I'd experienced as a kid. And then they, w- they would spend the money, but it was too reactive where they would just kind of see someone and be like, Hey, what is this on my tab? Can I buy this? And I was like, ah, I'd rather have them be thinking about something, not while they're strolling through an aisle, not have marketing determine what they want, but have them kind of sit in quiet silence for a bit and really feel it. And so that experiment where mom and dad just kind of ran a tab, even though it was efficient, I didn't feel like it was effectively teaching them to like decide first before all of these marketing inputs started flowing at them. So that one didn't really work. The allowance one worked pretty well uh, in the sense that you just could show them, hey, you've got another $5. So look how much you have now. I've liked that one. And then we'll see what we come up with next for experiments. I mean, I have a friend that has a matrix of ages and expenses that he and his wife will pay for as the kids get older. And it goes till they're like 28. And I thought, okay, that's, you know, maybe I'll have an experiment there. And the car is another experiment with, with my boy that now drives. I thought, well, what does he pay for? And I just thought, okay, we'll pay for stuff, but you have to chauffeur. So you pay insurance and everything? We pay his insurance. We'll pay for gas. He's using the old van. So it's certainly not a fun car, but it gets him around. It's interesting because when when he pushed back on becoming the family Uber driver, which is essentially what it was, I showed him all the costs that were rolling into teenager insurance is crazy expensive. The gas, the depreciation of the vehicle. And he's like, what's depreciation? So we got to teach him what depreciation is. And I just showed him, this is worth serious money. So you can pay for all of that and you won't be our Uber driver or we can keep this arrangement. He, He elected to stay Uber driver. So that's been interesting and maybe I'll, I'll change it, but just like with the budget, you know, you're iterating, you're figuring it out. We've never done this before. And so in a few months, a few years, there'll be some other experiment we'll have to do and we might get to change our minds halfway through. That's okay. What they're not allowed to do is say, Hey, with Porter, you did blah. So that's not fair. It's like, no, 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 that is not an argument. We're learning, we're evolving, it's gonna be fun. So we had a mom write in with a question. So she has two twin five-year-olds and they're doing the Ron Lieber method of allowance where they have give, save, and spend jar. So she said that she explained to her five-year-olds that with the spend jar is when you see something really special and you wanna be able to get it, you have the money for it. They've run into an issue where the girls do not think anything is special enough to ever spend money on. So whenever she's like, we could go to Target, there's like, there's nothing at Target that's special enough for me to spend my money on. And so she's worried about creating this narrative where it's not okay to spend your money on something. You're always limiting. And so she was wondering if you had any thoughts on maybe changing some of that thought process. Does this mom spend money in front of the, these are twin girls? Yeah. Yeah. Does she spend money in front of them? That's a great question. We'll have to follow up with her on that. Does she show joy when she's doing it? (laughs) I would maybe start there. I mean, they, gosh, they might just grow out of it in six months. You never know. But I wouldn't be overly concerned about it. I think she's living the real story and they're just being really fun little kids. You know, I think, I mean, honestly, the one thing that I've realized is you're teaching your kids so much of the time 
not in those moments where you think you're teaching them. You're like, oh, I had this really great sit down. Like, no, no. It happens all the other times where you don't even know they're watching. You don't know it was impactful. You don't, they don't even seem aware. And then years later, they're like, well, I remember when you and mom were talking about it, and you're like, what? Were you even there? So <laughs> I think she can rest assured that her positive example will carry a lot more weight than even Ron's great ideas, you know, of, of like, here's, here's how you can do these buckets. And knowing her, she's in our community. I know that she's a very intentional, more minimalist mom, especially with twins. And the girls have pretty much everything they need, which is one of those hard things for our five-year-olds. They don't really need anything. And so I think that they've internalized that too, of like, maybe it's just not connecting with what those little wants are and they'll probably grow out of it. That makes a little sense. Like if she has a pretty strong, like minimalism vibe, I could see that coming across. So we talked about at eight, you start employing your kids, but there's a difference between kids managing allowance and managing money that they've earned themselves. So what have you seen as your kids went through that and really having their own earned money? Did it change their spending habits? It really didn't. I mean, their allowance was very small. It was just practice money. And when they start working, it's good money for their age. So they actually have a shot at really buying to a kid meaningful things. So they'll go through phases and they'll put in a good bit of money on whatever the phase is. And they have had the experience of growing out of a phase and then kind of recognizing like, oh man, I put a good bit of money there. And that's been fun to talk about because the work earnings allow for bigger, mm, there's a little more magnitude to the spending. And I think that can carry a little more emotional weight. And I mean that in a positive way, like the emotion is there for instruction. So then they can look and they can say they regret spending so much on these things. And that's totally okay too. The nice thing about having them give and save as well is that the saving is such a nice fallback to be like, you know, even if you feel like you made a mistake here and whether or not they actually did is up for debate, but you know, you're feeling this way now, but my word, like, look at all this money you have saved. So you're still moving forward. You're still progressing and you're just learning more about what you really care about. And that's, we can't know that out of the gate. And so it's okay to kind of learn as we go. I have one that, uh, my second, he's full on investing in the stock market. My biggest concern there is I'm like, man, he's only seen like this crazy bull market, you know? So he has this idea. Like yesterday he goes, well, dad, stocks always go up. And I'm like, "Mm, wait, (laughs) what? And he goes, no, I mean like since 1930, I said, oh, okay. But there are lengths of time in there. And you know, we had a good discussion, but he has these ideas of retiring early and investing. And he tells all of his buddies how he's an owner in Apple, you know, or whatever else is in the S&P 500. So that's been interesting for him because he takes his savings and he lops 25% off of his paycheck before it even hits that Libra equation. And um, when I showed him his 401k balance, I mean, he's at YNAB, right? With a 401k. And I said, hey, here, here's your employer match. It's very small because 6% of not a lot is not that much. But he thought that was pretty neat. But the compounding that he's experienced over the last three years, he was blown away. I could have said that till I was blue in the face about how magical compound interest is. But once he saw that his account balance was, I don't know, $1,400, he was like, "You what? Is this right? I mean, he was questioning everything. So sometimes the best lessons. They see you doing a lot and mirroring a lot and they see how you handle things and they see that you have a good money relationship with your partner and that nothing's off the table. 
And then they also just get to experience it all for themselves. And that's where so much of the learning is really going to happen. Absolutely. And so when they open 401ks with YNAB, which usually happens automatically, do you explain to them what those accounts are? How do you have those conversations about investing with kids? So I will pay my kids to read certain books. Like I literally will be like, I'll pay you to read this book. And oh gosh, they have many choices. So The Millionaire Next Door is great for just kind of thinking through consumption and the visibility of consumption. The Richest Man in Babylon is a great parable that is very approachable. The Wealthy Barber is like a more modern version of that, and they love that one. I'm not a huge Kiyosaki fan, like the Rich Dad, Poor Dad thing. I didn't really totally care for. But his second book, The Cashflow Quadrant, is a pretty good primer on the idea of like building a business versus just putting in time. I start them on these books when they're like 13, and both of my boys so far have said that that book has really helped him just think about, oh, a doctor makes good money, but only makes money when she's in the operating room working on a patient. So that one's been good. They could not handle the little book of common sense investing by Bogle, the late Bogle. So they thought it was super boring. I feel like they should give it another go. I have a lot. I have some that are more like goals and thinking through those things. So there are certain nonfiction titles that I feel like "Eh, it's worth paying them 20 bucks to read this book and write a summary for me. And then it just kind of rolls around in their head a little bit. And they'll take it from a book and I can tell, again, I can talk to them about it and tell them all these things. And it's like, well, yeah, you said that, but I know everything. So, you know, and then they, they'll read a book and they'll come to me like, dad, did you know this? And I just have to kind of pretend <laughs> like that it's the first time I've ever heard it because they didn't believe me when I said it. <laughs> Well, my dad's business partner gifted me Security Analysis by Benjamin Graham when I was 14. Yes. It's the classic. Well, there now, see, see, your puzzle pieces for me are starting to come together. So Security Analysis, yeah, at 14, and mm-hmm, this is all making sense. Well, if they had trouble with the little book of Common Sense Investing, the Bogleheads Guides to Investing by Mel Linder, this is another one that's like basically the same concepts, but a shorter, easier read for kids. Definitely yeah. something to check out. I love that aspect of them learning from places other than me. It also teaches them like, hey, you can learn from books. Absolutely. And you might never have had this conversation, but I'm curious if you and Julie ever thought about when your kids grow up and they go out into the world, they're going to find partners who have likely not talked about budgeting, about budgeting a way that your kids have. How are you going to help them navigate that if they have somebody who's maybe never budgeted before as a partner? I mean, the scariest thing in the world, you're like, okay, I gave it my all raising these kids. And then someone else just totally, some lame-o parents raised that kid, you know, and now they're marrying. (laughs) I really shouldn't even make a joke about that. That's not true. But you do hope against hope that obviously your kids pick the right partner. But Julie and I have been married 18 years and we still are learning how to do all this together. So... You know, you hope they marry someone that's emotionally intelligent and knows how to have hard conversations and have it well, and that they can work through any of those kinds of issues. I think that's just kind of table stakes for a good relationship. I don't think I'll give them my book on their marriage day or anything like that. I think you'll pay them to read it before they get married. Yeah, I'd be like, hey, hey, I'll pay you, young man, if you'll read this book. 20 bucks. It's not bad. (laughs) Not bad. You have to write a paper, though. So Jesse, any last pieces of advice for parents that are starting to have this money conversation with their kids? Yeah, like never stop. 
Never, ever, ever stop. And you know, when they're 40, you still will have conversations and they may look more like, hey, mom and dad, what do things look like for you? And do you have your affairs in order? You know, like kind of the not awkward, but uncomfortable conversations at times, you know, hard conversations. And so they may look like that. So I would always try and keep money as this, not a taboo topic, something that's totally fine to talk about and keep it up. So I don't think that kids need to know everything about your finances that they, I wouldn't want my kids to tell friends or anything about certain aspects of our finances. I'm sure of it, but you can start to treat them more as partners and nah, not partners, but more as peers in money. So when Porter's 23, could I, could I see Porter as a peer and say, Hey Porter, I'm thinking about, um, think about buying this rental property. What do you think? That kind of conversation I've now elevated Porter to peer status. And I think it's important that we recognize that they'll be able to fill that role soon. They don't know everything and you don't know everything still, but trying to get them to where you can see them as a peer. I think I read that in a book called wealth and families by a guy out of Harvard. And I really liked that. It resonated with me where I felt like at some point my kids will really be helpful to me in helping us as a family navigate money. And it won't just be Jesse and Julie dispensing this advice, you know, that they'll have really good ideas and really well-formed thoughts on how things could go. But also be really forgiving as a parent to yourself with money lessons and all of the other lessons. Just keep trying. Awesome. Jesse, before we let you go, we have to have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. The sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where we ask the magical hat to reveal something about you. Are you ready? I think so. What is one purchase you've made that you regret? So I paid $60,000 for uh, software back in 2008 that we would launch as a replacement for our desktop app. And we scrapped it like two weeks before we were going to go live with it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that one still haunts me. I know that one's kind of old. I also, two days ago, bought some pants that are way too wide in the legs. (laughs) And I don't want to return them because it's a hassle. So here I am with pants that look like I'm from the 90s, which I am. Maybe it fits. Hey, that happens in business sometimes, though, where you make that investment. It's just not the right fit. It's hard to swallow them. Yeah, the sunk cost fallacy kicks in strong, and I was glad to be able to let it go. I had good guidance from my business partner on doing it. But yeah, painful, painful. Absolutely. Jesse, where can people follow YNAB and make sure they're using it in their budgeting lives? YNAB.com if you're in a hurry. If you want to think about it, you can type the whole thing out. You need a budget.com. <laughs> you know, we've got the podcast where you're, you know, you've been a guest on there and we're really just oriented toward teaching people how to think about their money differently and then watch the magic happen. I love it. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Chelsea. Mamas, this was such a cool experience to get to talk to Jesse and hear about the start of YNAB when I've been using it for so long. But it was also fantastic to think about how he starts his kids with YNAB budgets at age eight. So amazing and a great way to make sure handling money is a normal part of your kid's routine. 
If you're not using YNAB yet, head to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash YNAB, that's Y-N-A-B, to start your 34-day free trial today. They don't even make you enter a credit card, so you've really got no excuse. Head to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash YNAB. Anyway, before you head off to check your favorite money books out from the library and pay your kids to read them, I've rounded up my top three takeaways from this conversation with Jesse for you to take into your budgeting life. Let's dive in. One, budgeting is an ongoing process. This is one of my favorite things about the whole YNAB strategy and Jesse's conversation today. A budget is not something we set once, and if we have to adjust it, we've done something wrong or we failed at budgeting. Budgeting is a process of continually making the decision of what our money can do best for us in that moment. That might mean that our priorities change over time. It likely will. And that just means really continually coming back to and thinking about what you need your money to do, what your family's goals and values are. And the only way you can fail at budgeting is if you stop doing it, you stop interacting, or you're trying to put in somebody else's rules into your budget. You decide what you want your relationship with money to be, what your goals are going to be, and you keep coming back and making your budget reflect that. Two, you don't need to have all the answers. When it comes to teaching our kids about money or really anything, we're never going to have all the answers. We're still learning. We're still uncovering things about how we manage money as adults. As Jesse said, he and his wife have been married for 18 years and they're still figuring out how to manage money together. And so I loved his example of, you know, having a conversation about how to best pay for college with Ron Lieber, who's an amazing expert. And instead of feeling like he had to figure out how they were going to cover college for their seven kids, he brought it to his kids. He said, how do you guys think we should handle this? And it doesn't mean he has to take their advice, but instead he shows them to have a growth mindset, how to think about continually asking questions, continually learning something new, and not to feel like those kids as they grow up and become adults have somehow failed if they don't have all the answers, right? We're showing our kids that we're learning right alongside with them. It gives them permission to fail, permission to keep learning. Fantastic lesson. And finally, our third takeaway was something Jesse mentioned right at the end of this interview, and I want to make sure we highlight it for a second. The third takeaway is your goal is for your kids to become peers in your family's money journey. If your kid is six, seven, eight years old, we don't need to get down and dirty with them on exactly how much money you make and what your investments are and how your asset allocation is split up. That's not age appropriate. and It's not helpful. Your kids aren't ready for that. But the goal is that they grow into adults in their 20s and 30s who you can have conversations about how you're building family wealth. You can talk to them about estate planning and investment choices and budget choices and family values and really feel like that they have good ideas, that they have good understanding and that they have the skills and knowledge to at least have a good starting point for a conversation with you. When we talk here about generational wealth and leaving a legacy, giving your kids the knowledge and the base and the confidence to enter into conversations with you, with other adults, confidently about money, that's the beautiful thing. That's when you know whatever wealth, whatever lessons you leave them, they're going to be able to take them and turn them into something even greater to make sure that they pass those lessons on to their kids, that they build more wealth to pass on to the next generation. It truly is a beautiful thing. And I know that by starting this conversation today, you can do this. Mama, you've got this. I want to thank Jesse again for coming on the show and bravely being our first ever male solo guest. I thought he did amazing. And just sharing the YNAB story. 
You can find links to YNAB and download our free family money values template in the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash 109. I appreciate you spending some of your day with me. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time.